Let me encourage you to take up your Bibles and uh, to turn to Romans chapter 12. Uh, Miriam read it for us uh, earlier. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 13. It's page 1139 in the Church Bibles, if you can find one in front of you. I think it will help you to have that in front of you, and then you'll know why I'm saying what I'm saying. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 13, page number 1139 in the Church Bibles. And we continue in our series looking at Romans 12. Uh, John Wesley, the 18th century preacher, was arguably the most celebrated Englishman of that century. He, he was certainly the most well-travelled man of his time. In his lifetime, you know, he rode on horseback the equivalent of ten times around the world. And he did it in a tireless pursuit of proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. So what keeps a man going flat out for Jesus? Well, very simply, he completely believed the gospel. Now, listen to uh, what he said on one occasion. Wherever I see one or a thousand men running into hell, I will stop them if I can. As a minister of Christ, I will beseech them in his name to turn back, he writes. The gospel was everything to Wesley. He was, in the language of Romans 12, verse 1, overwhelmed by the mercies of God. And in response, he offered his body as a living sacrifice to God. Now, I knew a little of Wesley's life, having read this some, uh, some time ago, but I've been struck this week to discover that Wesley made a point of renewing his commitment to the Lord at the beginning of every year. Did you know that? Every year he would, every new year he would get together with Christian friends to recommit himself. They together would recommit themselves to the Lord. And it seemed in the things he wrote, he also marked each new year in his journal with words of commitment to the cause of Christ. On, the, on January the 1st, 1785, he wrote this in his journal. Whether this be the last or no, may it be the best year of my life. Five years later, on January the 1st, 1790, his entry was as follows. I'm now an old man, decayed from head to foot, my eyes are dim. My right hand shakes much. My mouth is hot and dry every morning. I have a lingering fever almost every day. My motion is weak and slow. However, blessed be God, he wrote. I do not slack my labour. I can preach and write still. Seems Wesley began every year with a resolution to serve the Lord wholeheartedly, to be, as Romans 12 puts it, a living sacrifice. And that is what I began to lay out for us last week as our New Year's resolution for 2008. That collectively we here at Christchurch Forward would, Romans 12, chapter 12, verse 1, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. As I consider the, uh, the difference you see that one man made to this great nation, I wonder if there's anything we couldn't achieve as a church family were we committed together to offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. Think of the difference we could make. Our church would be transformed, our society would be different, our world would be deeply affected. Someone asked after last week's sermon, what would it look like if we offered our bodies as living sacrifices? It is the right question, of course. And the answer is, read on in Romans 12 and 13. Because that's what Paul is going to lay out for us now. He's told us to be a living sacrifice. Now read on and we'll see what it looks like. 
For this morning, as we look at verses 3 to 13 of chapter 12, we see how being a living sacrifice will transform the church. Verses 3 to 13 are all about the way we relate to one another in the church. Next week, we'll see about living with unbelievers. But now it's for us living as Christian people together, relating to one another. And here we will see in verses 13, uh, 3 to 13, that wholehearted commitment to God will mean wholehearted commitment to God's people. Well, it all begins when I have a right view of myself. And if you're taking notes, there's the first point for you. Have a right view of yourself, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. You see, look, it's vital that we grasp verse 3 before we attempt to look at, and certainly before we attempt to live, verses 4 to 13. As you read through the passage in preparation for church this morning, and I am assuming that you do read through the Bible passage to prepare for church, I'm presuming that we prepare for church in all sorts of ways, um, praying about the service and for the preacher and for one another. I presume we do that. I'm being a bit naughty, aren't I, really? Well, it would be a good thing to start doing if you don't. Well, as you read through the passage in preparation for coming to church, or as you heard it read earlier for us by Miriam, what was it that really grabbed you in Romans 12, verses 3 to 13? My guess is that verses 6 to 13 appeared to be the most, um, can I put it this way, fruity part of the passage. I would think that that something in those verses really tickled your fancy, whether it be the spiritual gifts of verses 6 to 8, or the details of how we should live in verses 9 to 13. And my guess is that you'd consider those verses to be the real nitty-gritty of the passage. Let's get on to those, you might say. Well, I would agree, they probably are the real nitty-gritty, but listen, Paul won't dream of going to verses 4 to 13 until we've got verse 3 in place. Because until we've understood verse 3, we won't actually be able to live verses 4 to 13. See, we might look at this and say, oh yes, we've got to to love each other, and, and you want to get on to that. But if you try to live that way, until you've got verse 3 in place, you won't be able to. See, to be wholeheartedly committed to God's people, Paul says in verse 3, I must have a right, a correct view of myself. It's what we saw last week in verse 2. If I'm going to live differently, if verse 2, I'm not going to conform to the pattern of this world, my mind must be renewed. That's what Paul says here in verse 3. See, it's all about a transformed mind. Verse 3, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment very clear there in in our English translations. What we can't see in our English translations though, but it's worth noting, is that the Greek verb pronin, to think, is repeated four times in this sentence. Verse 3, you see, is all about the renewal of my mind, how I think about myself. And Paul says when your mind is renewed, you'll have a sober view of yourself and then you'll be transformed to live as you should in the Christian community. Now, this is a huge issue in the book of Romans. All the way through the book, Paul is trying to persuade two groups of Christians to love each other, to live together in unity, and to demonstrate their Christian commitment to each other in a very practical way by giving financially to each other. 
The two groups in Rome are Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles. It seems as you read through the letter that the Jewish Christians thought more highly of themselves than they should, thinking that they were more important than the Gentile believers. Now, while it won't be a Jew-Gentile issue here at Forward, in every church there'll be at least the temptation for one group to think more highly of themselves than they should. And as a result, they will not treat others as they should. Think of a church far from here, and some years ago now, a Bible-believing church, a church full of real Christians, people who could tell you when they became Christians, they could give you their testimony, But it was a church that had a desperate time because one group within the church thought they were more spiritual than the others. And the result was that they looked down on those others. And far from being spiritual, there was no love from this group to that group. By contrast, when I was working with Christians in the workplace, I remember going to one Christian group within a a company of solicitors. They'd asked me from time to time to go and lead Bible studies or give talks. And what was very striking when I went to that group, that was one of the partners was a Christian, and the way he treated as equal every other member of the group was very impressive, including the cleaner and the odd job man. So as we had Bible study, um, he would listen attentively to what they had to say. Their opinion was important, as important as his. It's very impressive to see it. And a great mark of true spirituality. You see, loving other Christians is the nitty-gritty of offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God. See, look at verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Devoted to one another. It's strong language, isn't it? Devoted in brotherly love. Devoted as brothers or brothers and sisters, if you prefer. I have one biological brother. His name is David. Some of you know him. He's taller than me, as most people are. Uh, he used to be dark, in, his hair used to be dark, now it's grey. And because he was tall and dark, we'd say of David that he was tall, dark and two out of three is not bad. Or, if we're being really cruel, uh, tall and in the dark, very handsome. Well, that's, uh, that's David, my brother, and I do hope he listens to this talk, or that would have been a waste of time, wouldn't it? Um, but uh, look, if, if David rang me up, today and he said Paul something's gone terribly wrong I'm financially ruined I don't have two pennies to rub together do you know what I'd do I'd give him whatever he needed if it was money I'd give him money if he needed a roof over his head he and his wife could move in tonight if need be even if we didn't have room we'd work it out if his need was different I'd drop everything and go and see him if that would help I'd certainly be praying for him and calling him every day to make sure he was okay And look, I wouldn't do that because I'm a great brother. I don't think I am a particularly good brother, but but because that's what brothers do. That's what it means to be family, isn't it? Now, that was the challenge for the church in Rome. They were to love like that. See, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. The Jewish believers should be devoted to loving the Gentile believers like brothers. And so should we, with each other. See, here's what it will mean at forward to be a living sacrifice to God. It actually means going out of our way for others so that it costs me. Otherwise, it is no sacrifice at all, is it? It doesn't cost me. It means, verse 13, 
to share with God's people who are in need and to practice hospitality. Now there's a challenge because hospitality is so much more than giving people a cup of tea or having them round for a meal. Oh, it is that, but it's more than that really, isn't it? I love this definition of hospitality. Have you heard it? Making people feel at home when you wish they were. You've all been in that position, haven't you? You've had people around for dinner and you were thinking, when are they going to go? Well, even that definition is not really good enough because if you look again at verse 13, it's sharing with God's people who are in need. So when someone's made redundant and they can't afford to pay the mortgage, we invite them to stay. Their noisy children, their smelly rabbit, the lot, invited in. I have noisy children and a smelly rabbit, so I'm dropping a hint if ever I need a home. They can come and stay for as long as they need. And when you're sharing with people in need, that probably means you're not going to get anything back, do you see? Now that kind of hospitality is very difficult to live. That is sacrifice because it costs us. But look, we won't live like that until, verse 10, we honour others above ourselves. And that's why Paul has to begin with verse 3. See it again? Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. If we have a right view of ourselves, it will profoundly affect the way we relate to one another. If I think highly of myself and my opinions, I will not treat you well. Again, it all flows out of verse 2. Do you remember Paul told us in verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Now look, we saw the pattern of this world last week. I won't go through it all again. If you missed it, you can get it on the the sermon on CD or listen via the website. But in summary, the pattern of this world was laid out for us in Romans chapter 1. No need to turn it up, but it goes like this. Everyone Everyone in this world, and it's important that we're not looking at other people, everyone in this world exchanges the truth of God for a lie. Then having exchanged the truth of God for a lie... Worship created things, something else other than God. And as a result of that, God gives us over to ungodly living. As we noted last week, we see it in society at large. We've given up on God in these last decades in Britain. No longer attending church as a nation. And so we've replaced the worship of God for the worship of other things. Materialism, heathenism. And the result of that, pushing God out and worshipping other things, our lifestyle has become profoundly ungodly. So I'm sure when you watch the news, uh, watch the, the, the news and, and read your newspapers, you have the same desperate state uh, feeling that I do. Of where is it all going to end in our nation? We see the fruit of that rejecting God, serving other things and living ungodly in our daily lives. We see it in society at large. We can see it in individuals too. Like someone like Anthea Turner. Here's her autobiography, Fools Rush In. Now I know you can't believe that I've read this book, can you? (laughs) I can't believe that I'm admitting to it. It is actually a great window into the way many people think. Anthea Turner, like all people who walk this planet, and I'm not having a go at her, she has written this book and and put her story into the public domain, so I'm just plucking her out as an example. Like everyone on the planet, Anthea, Anthea Turner conformed to the pattern of this world. And let me tell you how it worked out for her in her life. 
She exchanged the truth of God for a lie. She had been brought up to attend her church youth group, but when she stopped going, she wrote this. I decided there and then that Jesus and God weren't all they were cracked up to be. It's still an area of my life and I haven't fully worked out. If anything, I'm inclined to side with my agnostic father who believes in the ability of people and the human spirit above all else. So she had the truth of God, but she pushed it to one side, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And as you read on, you'll see that she worshipped other things. Her career was the most important thing to her. Success and her own happiness. And as a result, as she pursued those things rather than God, God gave her over to ungodly living to the extent that she will unashamedly publish a book in which she justifies her adulterous actions which broke up two marriages, her own and those of another man. See, like all people, Anthea Turner conformed to the pattern of this world. But for our purposes this morning, listen to a key moment for her when she was invited to a Whitney Houston concert. When I was invited to a Whitney Houston concert at Wembley with a whole crowd of friends a few weeks later, I accepted without hesitation and we had a great night out. Whitney had real star quality and I was hugely impressed. When she sang the lines, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all, I nearly cried. She was spot on. Do you want to read it? You can have it. Very important moment. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. That's how the world will teach me to think about myself. You know the words of the song? It's a rousing song. I think the tune is great, but the words, listen to them. Everybody's searching for a hero. People need someone to look up to. I never found anyone who fulfilled my needs. A lonely place to be. And so I learned to depend on me. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. I'm going to depend on me, not on him. It goes on. I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadows. If I fail, if I succeed, at least I've lived as I believed. No matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity because the greatest love of all is learning to love yourself. That's the greatest love of all. Now look, the reason I've gone through that is because that's the way the world thinks. And once I'm done with the truth of God, my mind will be ready to be persuaded by stuff like this and life will end up being about me. I'll love myself first because as we thought last week, I'm worth it because I'm number one, because I'm amazing. But you and I know when you have a high view of yourself, you become conceited and proud and obnoxious and unpleasant and a pain in the neck. And most importantly for us this morning, when you think too highly of yourself, you do not treat others well. Unless, of course, it suits you to do so. See, we're not stupid. We know that sometimes it benefits us to be nice. It pays to treat others well. But that is not verse 9. That is not sincere love. And it won't lead to verse 10, being devoted to others in brotherly love. Not when it costs and when it hurts and when it's inconvenient. Learning to love myself, the pattern of this world, results in me treating others badly or at best using them to make my life happier. 
No, you see, I'll only treat people as I should if I have a right view of myself. Just think about the times when you've mistreated people, been rude to them or ignored them, or just not put yourself out for them. Check it out and you'll have acted like that towards them because you don't respect them. By contrast, the people you do respect, you always treat properly. I used to work with the, uh, the Christian preacher and writer John Stott. As far as I know, I never treated John Stott badly. I was never rude to him or offhand with him. I never put him down. I never ignored him when he came into the room because I respected him. Because I don't think that I'm better than him. Verse 10, I honour him above myself. See how the world does us no favours when it tells us to love ourself. Believing that is a recipe for selfish and self-centred living, which is no way for living sacrifices to live among each other. So to live differently, to be transformed, verse 2, we must have our minds renewed. We must be renewed in our thinking. Verse 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Only when I think of myself with sober judgment will I have a chance of living out verses 9 to 13. So question, how am I to have sober judgment of myself? Well, I consider the gospel. Look at the uh, phrase at the end of verse 3. It's not an easy phrase, but uh, it's not impossible to understand. See, at the end of verse 3, rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. I think understanding that phrase, that part of the verse, hangs on understanding the word measure. Measure could be one of two things, couldn't it? It could mean an amount given to me, a a gallon, a litre, a pint, whatever. Or as I think it actually is here, a standard. A measure like a yardstick. A standard by which we assess things. Paul says here in verse 3, we are to think of ourselves in accordance with the gospel standard. The gospel measure. So every one of us in the church family should use the same gospel standard as our measure for assessing ourselves. That's verse 3, you see. The measure of faith God has given us collectively, not just you individually. And so how does the uh, the gospel give me a sober judgment of myself? Well, remember last week, verse 1, the gospel tells me of God's mercy. And the very word mercy tells me I am an unworthy sinner. It doesn't tell me to love myself, but that I'm really very unlovable. It doesn't tell me that I'm amazing, but actually that I'm an arrogant person, arrogantly rejecting the truth about God that he has made so plain in creation. The Gospel doesn't tell me I'm worth rescuing, but that I'm a wicked person because I've turned my back on the God who gave me life. I'm not, learned, I'm not to learn to love myself, I should be ashamed of myself. I should realise that all I really should have is judgement, the judgement of hell. But the mercy of God, verse 1. God's mercy. The Gospel says, you're not lovable at all, but God loves you anyway. He doesn't love you because you're wonderful, he loves you even though you're horrible. Now do you see how the Gospel gives me a sober view of myself? Under the influence of the world, I'll be intoxicated with the thought that I'm a wonderful person. I should love myself. And the more highly I think of myself, the more lowly I'll think of you. 
But when my mind is renewed by the gospel, my life is transformed to treat you well. Because the gospel never lets me get too big for my boots. Well, first point then, have a right view of yourself. Secondly, give yourself to others. See, once I've got a right view of myself, well, verse 4, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, this will not be a new picture to you at all. Paul likens God's people to a human body. The bodies of all believers are one body in Christ. But you see, that picture of the one body is meant to remind us of the single sacrifice of many bodies in verse 1. If we are one body, as collectively we give our individual bodies, if we do that collectively, we become a body which is sacrificed to God. I think the key phrase in these verses is there at the end of verse 5. Each member belongs to each other. You belong to others in this church family. Uh, That's something we need to grasp. We really do need to uh, know that and believe it. If um, If I wasn't English and British, and if you, most of you, were not, I would probably tell you at this point to look into the person's eyes who's sitting next to you, to gaze into their eyes and say, I belong to you. You, We're not going to ask you to do that. You'll be pleased to know. And, uh, of course, if if Andrew was here, our Australian, I mean, I know the Australians are very much into that. They would, of course, do that straight away. But um, uh, No, I'm not going to ask you to do that. So look out of the corner of your eye and think to yourself, no, no. The point is this. We belong to one another. As a Christian, I don't, belong, I don't only belong to Christ, but as a, as a believer, I belong to his body, the body of Christian believers. Now, do you see how this will deal with the rampant individualism that is so prevalent in society and so unhelpful in our church? If life is all about me, if life revolves around me, I will never serve you. Not sincerely, I'll only serve you when it suits me. And what is desperate is that we have permitted a sanctified individualism to go unchallenged in the church. So Christians are permitted to think it's all about my relationship with God. Life revolves around me and God. That's not good enough, is it? That's not actually, that's less than Christian. Now don't mishear me, if you do not have a personal relationship with God, that is hopeless as well. But when you become a Christian... You become part of the body of Christ. And end of verse 5, you belong to everyone else, to all the others. Now you see, when I believe that, verses 9 and 10, I'll love you, I'll be devoted to you, I'll honour you above myself. Do you see how this all helps to getting these verses right? One, have a right view of yourself. Secondly, give yourself to others. And then, thirdly, I'll make right use of my gifts. Verses 6 to 8. See, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to the faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach and so on. Now look, the focus of these verses is not on defining the gifts of the Spirit. It's not about you and I discovering our gifts, even though that's an important thing to do. 
Paul's focus here is on the humbling thought that however God has gifted me, he's given me those gifts for the good of others, to serve others, others in the body who are more important than me, others whom I belong to. See, verse 6, they are gifts of grace. They come from him for others. So take your gift and use it. That's the point. Verse 7, if your gift is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, teach. If it's encouraging, encourage and so on. Now again, see how this flows out of verses 1 and 2. Suppose I have been blessed with amazing talents. If I'm an amazingly talented and gifted person in the world, I'll want to be a celebrity. I'll want fame and honour and importance and reputation and superiority. That's what the world does for me if I'm very talented or gifted. I will be set apart as a remarkable person. I'll look at my abilities and I'll want recognition. I'll want to be a person of distinction. That's how the world treats talented, gifted people. But when a spiritually gifted person doesn't get too big for their boots but thinks of themselves with sober judgement, when that person fights against individualism and knows that they belong to all the others in the body, then they use their gifts as they should. They love sincerely, verse 9, hating what is evil, clinging to what is good. That's why Paul writes verse 9 where he does. These are brilliant words following verses 6 to 8. Often when there's a problem, you see, with spiritual gifts, it's because love is absent. Have you been in churches where where spiritual gifts are are, are exalted, and I'm not knocking them, but where they are exalted, when there becomes a problem, it is usually because people are not loving each other. And have you noticed too that the more gifted a church is, the more moral integrity is at risk. If we label something spiritual, we can con ourselves into thinking that we can lift ourselves above the categories of good and evil. So verse 9, hate evil, cling to what is good. And verse 10, if we're devoted to one another in brotherly love and we honour others above ourselves, that will ensure we don't misuse our gifts, won't it? And just in case you think all this uh, talk of, of gifts will take the wind out of the sails of spiritual gifts, well, Paul writes, verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be zealous. Yeah, be zealous. Use your gifts, for goodness sake. How we need a good dose of that in, in, in the church in Britain, don't we? A bit of a zealousness, a bit of zeal. But keep your fervour, verse 11, directed towards serving the Lord. Not all about me. Well, that's serving him. And the way I serve him is I serve you. And then look to verse 12. Verse 12, Paul writes, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. See, in some circles, spiritual gifts don't go well with patient endurance, constant prayer and joyful hope. If I'm very, very gifted, I might get very impatient with everyone else. No, no. Be patient. Patient endurance. That'll be the mark of the person who has a sober judgment of themselves. Well, how are we doing? As a church, Christ Church Forward, how are we doing? How are we doing as serving God, as living sacrifices, by, by serving one another, by being committed to each other, by giving ourselves to each other? You see, living this would be amazing, wouldn't it? 
As I close, let me be a little bit autobiographical. But I have seen this worked out in the most amazing way in this past week. As people have become aware that Caroline's away in New Zealand following her dad's sudden death and that I'm home alone with the children, well, not completely, mum and dad are here. Without them, I definitely would have sunk. Uh, but we've, uh, we've, we've been struggling on. As people have become aware of that, I've been overwhelmed with the love that's been shown me. Those who have the gift of serving, verse 7, have served us as a family. Verse 8, we've been encouraged with, uh, with telephone calls and cards and inquiries. Yes, people have the gift of encouragement and they're using it. Verse 8, those who've contributed, those who've contributed food, have given extremely generously. The freezer is full. Caroline won't have to cook for a month. Well, I exaggerate a bit. And at the end of verse 8, we've had mercy shown us cheerfully. It's been, it's been spectacular. And this week I found myself thanking God for the work of his spirit in the lives of so many here. And you know what it's done for me? It's given me even more the desire for this. Even more a desire to, to taste how wonderful it would be if all of us more and more were living this way, offering our bodies as living sacrifices so that it meant that we loved one another. How are we doing? I think we're doing very well. But there's always room for more, isn't there? And there are some who are not such high profile as me that we need to be looking out for. And I know many of you do that. And sometimes it's just about knowing it. And this passage would encourage us to do that. Let's pray that we would be people who can think out how we can be living out using the gifts we've got in such practical ways but we'll only do it when we have a sober view of ourselves first. Let's pray together.